And good evening, everyone, or good morning, whatever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe. We've got some breaking news we're going to get to at the top of the show, and we've got some expertise we're going to be calling in from California, and then we're going to be going all the way across the world to England, to our old friend Maria Wheatley. Well, she's not old. She's quite young, but we've had her on the show many times, and we're going to be talking about some uh, kind of um, Neolithic breaking news there, if one can kind of think of it in that direction. Um, So let me see if our our expert is available. Uh, John... Are you there, John Francis? Oh, hi, Richard. I'm here. You're over-modulating again. Uh, Anyway, John Francis, um, for those of you who don't know, John is uh, our naval expert. He actually served, I believe, on an Arleigh Burke destroyer. So whenever something comes up, particularly regarding the uh, uh, Navy and the U.S. military, we turn to John. And, John, you've been doing homework all afternoon. What's the latest on this bizarre fire in the Bonhomme Richard, which is a light aircraft carrier currently called an amphibious assault ship, Uh, but it sure looks like the light aircraft carriers that I am familiar with from my dad in World War II. What happened? When did it start? And what's the current status? Okay. um, About 8.30 in the morning, um, this morning, a um, Pacific time, right? Uh, Pacific time, right. A fire broke out. This is in San Diego uh, shipyard. Um, broke out, and then a, an explosion was heard. And there's approximately 17 sailors that, and, and four civilians that were injured. And as we speak, it's still on fire. A lot of smoke is uh, coming out. There's been a one nautical mile um, safety zone put around the ship, um, keep, you know, to keep keeping ships away from the uh, the area, um, there was an, a, a press conference by Admiral Sobeck just a couple of hours ago, and uh, basically what he's telling us is that the fire uh, their understanding is the fire broke out in a vehicle storage compartment in the whole whole of the ship. Uh, this is a um, an amphibious uh, landing craft, and what it does is it it can carry helicopters, small boats, and amphibious vehicles. So that's a, there's a, so obviously there's a compartment for holding these um, these uh, vehicles, and it broke out there. And what happened was the heat from the fire in the compartment caused a draft, which ignited an explosion. Um, and so the, the explosion didn't cause the fire, but it was the result of the fire. Was this ordinance cooking off? Because apparently, I mean, obviously a ship of that size has all kinds yeah. of ordinance on board. That was, the Admiral said that was his first concern. But this ship now is uh, basically, it's for about a year or, or more, it's been in, uh, in repair mode in the, um, at, at, at the dock there. So it wasn't carrying ordinance. So ah. it's... Uh, the normal procedure is you offload the ordnance, uh, you know, especially if you're going into repair repair mode. So there was no ordnance, fortunately. That would have been a much serious situation. But so what they say is burning now is above this compartment were offices, uh, offices and building compartments, and they're they're claiming it's the books, uh, papers, and normally things you have in a um, in a compartment, an office compartment or birthing compartment, which it seems like a lot of smoke to me. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, this does not look like a small office fire. And, not really. And I heard uh, some statement, official statement from the Navy, that this fire could burn out of control for days. I heard that too. Since when do uh, papers and books burn for days? This- Especially when you have a lot of fire crews, uh, the, the fire boats are, are putting war, water through the uh, into into the compartment, and you know that firefighters are sort of surrounding the fire, and um, that seems like there's a lot more to the story. You know, I was going to say it sounds to me almost like a cover-up because what I would understand on a modern ship, <clears throat> if certainly she's been undergoing refurbishment, you have the ability to seal compartments. You then right. can turn on halon gas, and right. you basically suffocate the fire 
starve it for oxygen. Uh, right. Obviously, you want to get personnel out of those compartments, but they wouldn't be there now anyway. Why are they using water, and why are they saying it's going to take days? Yeah, that's 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 a mystery. That really is. Uh, you know, I was on board a ship, and it's mostly metal inside. You know, the furniture is metal, the desk yeah. is metal. <clears throat> so uh, what's burning? Yeah, well, he said clothes and books. <laughs> so... Um, but don't they have, I mean, the, 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 it used to be you put out fires of water. Yeah. Know? And the modern system is, if you certainly are on a ship or a submarine, you can seal compartments. You right. flood the compartment with halon gas, which is a right. organic fire suppressant, drives out mm-hmm. the oxygen. Fire right. goes out for lack of oxygen, lack of air. Right. So why is it taking days? Yeah, that's uh, that'll be interesting. We'll have to Well, have it sounds to me... Like whatever's burning has its own oxygen supply, mm-hmm. which means you, know, you my, could not my, use halon. My initial thought before I heard anything was that, well, you know, they're doing repairs and maybe some welder, you know, um, ignited the fire or some gas leak. But that's what they're talking about is a fire starting inside a compartment where, I guess, vehicles are stored and. The way I imagine it would be like a garage, and there is, if there's no vehicles there, there's, you know, what's going to catch on fire? <laughs> yep, yep. No, I think uh, I, I strongly believe you're right. I think they're not telling us the told truth. In fact, yeah. widening out to big, big picture, the so-called view from 30,000 feet, Right. I've said on air, and I have a lot of data to support it, we are at war. Mm-hmm. And the president, proclaiming himself a wartime president, against an invisible enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone assumed, of course, he was referring to you know, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. I think COVID-19 is only one aspect of this invisible war. Mm-hmm. As I've said before, um, I think it's the breakaways. We're mm-hmm. making strenuous efforts to get Richard Dolan, who is mm-hmm. the breakaway expert on the planet, on the show. Mm-hmm. Several months ago, he agreed in a phone call to come on uh, mm-hmm. He said he had to do it after his June conference. Well, the June conference is like a month, you know, in the rearview mirror. And we've been trying to get hold of Richard Dolan, but he's not answering his phone. Mm-hmm. So if anybody out there knows Richard Dolan, give him a call and tell him, you know, I need to talk to him about the breakaways. Because if the planet is under attack mm-hmm. and all of these oblique references are really code, including the president storming across Lafayette Square after the mm-hmm. demonstrators have been ruthlessly, you know, you know, basically evicted with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, every everything up to and including, you know, mounted troops on horses. So the president could dash across that square flanked by his top military brass, including the um, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs in military fatigues to hold up an upside down Bible in front of that church. I mean, John, you know that upside down American flags signif- signify distress, right? Correct. What does an upside down Bible indicate? That's the dark forces. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I think you may be onto something. I think it was a code. I do not think Donald Trump is an idiot, contrary mm-hmm. to all the mainstream media. They are taking the easy way out. They're not looking for level upon level upon level because they have no resources to investigate something mm-hmm. as big as we're in some kind of interplanetary war. Mm-hmm. And remember my conversation with Chandra Wickrama Singh about how COVID came in from orbit. It had all the aspects of an orbital entry, including aerosols found high in the air weeks and weeks after the Chinese event over Italy. And why would a virus, which is so susceptible to ultraviolet, and humidity linger in the air from people on the ground um, in copious amounts enough to be detected on particles of air pollution, soot and fly ash and stuff like that. That indicates a massive amount of virus in the atmosphere. And no one yet that I know of has done upper atmospheric uh, you know, analysis. But if they did, my suspicion is they would find it there. In other words, I think we're basically under some kind of duress. I think that an awful lot of the U.S. military 
and the senior staff and the command structure of the United States is directed at combating this incursion in various forms. And this ship, this sudden fire in the fleet of a ship which is named after a famous ship of the U.S. Revolution is more messaging and signaling. I do Mm -hmm. not think this is an accident. I know these are circumstantial lines of evidence, but the uh, bottom line is we are not being told the truth about something as simple as a ship fire because a few Mm -hmm. big books and papers would not burn for days. Mm The metaphysical point of view says there is there are no accidents. You know everything has meaning and message. And uh, a couple of things that I noticed right away was right next to the um, the Bon Richard, uh, there is what appears to be the USS Zumwalt, which is a, uh, a stealth one of our most modern um, destroyers. If oh, you look at it. Yeah, it's the new generation of destroyers. It looks like something out of Star Wars. It's a stealth, uh, you know, like the stealth bomber. It's yeah. designed not to be reflective. Yeah, so you have angles to reflect radar up into the sky mm-hmm. as opposed to back to the uh, detectors. Right. And then we have the uh, USS Fitzgerald uh, right next to it, which was moved. And, of course, we remember from uh, – that's how I first joined the show was when we had that collision. I, I believe it was uh, two or three years ago. It's at least a couple of years ago. Yeah, 2017, I believe. In the and, far uh, east so, off, off Japan. Yeah, so that was a very uh, puzzling incident, too. So you have those, these two events juxtaposed. You know. Well, I also so, saw a, 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 a video this morning of the president last night uh, at, I think, Walter Reed, surrounded by top military brass. Everyone was wearing a black mask, including the president of the United States, who, as you know, has been loudly proclaiming that masks are not important and he doesn't look good in one and he doesn't think he has to wear one because he's tested twice a day and all that. There he is wearing a mask, you know, a a medical mask with the presidential seal boldly emblazoned on the side of it. Something is going on. We are not privy to what, but it seems to me that we need to stay very closely tuned for what's going to happen Next, I will do that, Richard, and uh, report back to you any oh, any new developments. Super. All right. Well, thank you, John. Okay, thank you. I look forward to a good program this evening. Ah, uh, so do I. <laughs> okay. Uh, next order of business. If you go to the other side of midnight, uh, you will find the first link uh, in my items. Uh, what you have to do is you go to the other side of midnight.com. You click on tonight's banner which prominently features Stonehenge, a stunning image at uh, sunrise of Stonehenge with Maria's name there. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. Uh, Scroll down or use the fast links uh, connection at the top of the page. Take you to my items. The first two are devoted to this bizarre and puzzling aircraft carrier fire. The second link is an actual video link uh, from channel 10 there in San Diego, uh, which had up until a few minutes ago, live coverage. I guess they had to terminate because the ship is not illuminated enough for CCD cameras at night. Again, I don't find that a reasonable explanation. So it's advertised as a live feed. The fire is going on for days. Why have the news media been, shall we say, forced to truncate their coverage? Again, another mystery. Below that, item number three. Remember last night I talked to you about this astonishing comet Comet Neowise, which is visible in the pre-dawn skies. And in the next couple, three days, it's going to flip over into the evening skies as it geometrically rounds the sun from the Earth's moving position. And then over the next several weeks, couple of weeks, it's going to mount higher and higher in the nighttime skies after sunset in the northwest. Uh, You can see it like 80 minutes, 90 minutes after sunset. Uh, I'm sorry, before sunset, you start looking and then you'll see it to like 90 minutes after when it sets. If you have a good horizon, you're going to have a spectacular view because even though this this comet passed closest approach to the sun several days ago, which is a time of maximum heating and maximum emission of volatiles, which, of course, is what comets do and why they have long tails and dust clouds and all that, because stuff is 
coming out of the comet because it's being heated. Um, this thing is still getting brighter as it gets closer to the Earth. It passes closest approach to Earth at something like 60-some million miles in, I believe, a week or 10 days, give or take. Um, so you're going to be treated to a once-in-a-generation spectacular. And again, I strongly urge you, do not try to watch it on television. Don't watch it on SLU. Don't look for video feeds from webcams. Go outside and use your own eyeballs. For everybody in the Northern Hemisphere, it's now in the perfect position to be seen, first in the morning, pre-dawn, and then in the evening after sunset. So, you know, you do yourself a favor. Kind of lift your your sights and spirits and uh, think of something beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. Speaking of which, if you look at items four, five, and six, they're all connected to some recent developments. There is a group at Oxford who believe that the COVID-19 virus did not originate in China, as I have been saying, and Chandra has been saying for weeks. Uh, Item number two, there's a Texas doctor who claims to have a procedure, a a, uh, medical procedure, uh, which can reverse cases of uh, COVID-19. You might want to take a look at that. His name is Dr. Richard Bartlett. And um, that should be very interesting. Uh, Item number six, there is new research, and there's always new research coming out back and forth about masks. I do not understand this nonsense about masks. When I was a kid, we wore masks. We played the Lone Ranger. We played, you know, cowboys and Indians. If you were a bad guy, if you were, you know, a gunslinger or a, a rustler, you wore a bandana. The key, of course, is you don't wear them 24-7. You only wear them when you're out, and you only need to wear them when you're around people. Remember, all these experts keep saying, if you can't do social distancing, a phrase I hate, it means just stay apart. Stay, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet from someone, or they're saying six feet. I would be, you know, act on, on the more conservative measure. The more distance, the better. You can't catch this thing, particularly if you're outside. If you're inside and you have strangers in, then, you know, dumb luck. Do not have strangers in your home in a closed space because we know now from various experiments, again, this is just basic science, that the virus is airborne, meaning it can float in particles so tiny that something called Stokes' Law will keep them suspended in the atmosphere for hours, if not maybe even a day or so closed room with no air circulation. If you're outside, you're really safe if you do these very simple things. And don't forget the hand washing, et cetera, et cetera, and not touching your face and all that stuff. I mean, this is really simple, simple, basic, dumb science. And for those people who say, and there's a whole bunch of experts on both sides, it kind of reminds me of the big nuclear uh, power debates back in the 1980s, where you would have congressional testimony And you'd have two groups of scientists, those scientists who were in favor of nuclear power, and they would testify under oath, you know, under pain of perjury, that they were telling the truth. They would say, oh, nuclear power is terrible. It's going to doom us and the planet and all that. Then you'd have them leave, and another group of scientists would come in who were paid by the nuclear power industry, and they would say, oh, nuclear power is perfectly safe. There's one chance in 10 billion or something of a reactor meltdown. This was, of course, all before Three Mile Island. The point is, when you're in confusion about which group of experts to believe, because experts can be bought. I know that's horrible to say, but they can be bought. And most of them very simply, because they don't make a lot of money. What you do is you revert to basic science. Like I saw a very vivid demonstration the other day. Uh, I think it was by Bill Nye, the science guy. And he basically had a candle in front of him. And he's sitting there and he's putting on various face coverings, starting with a bandana and then with a common surgical mask and then an N95. And he simply tried to blow the candle out. Obviously, the metaphor being, if you use your breath to blow a candle out, whatever is in your lungs and in your respiratory system will come out as well, simultaneous with blowing out the candle. 
In other words, it's your breath that carries these little droplets into the air, and the aerosolized droplets, which are tiny enough to float in the air for hours and hours. And he demonstrated brilliantly, I thought, that with any form of covering, the candle being snuffed out is much reduced. The bandana, eh, you got to really huff and puff. But it does stop air from getting to the candle. Now, for those people who say, well, you're going to kill people from asphyxiation, this is why, of course, doctors and nurses have been wearing masks for over 100 years, and they wear masks routinely as part of their profession. Have you ever heard of a doctor or a nurse dying from wearing a mask? I haven't. If anybody has actual data, please send it to me. This Falderall is designed. In fact, as part of my discussion with John a few minutes ago, I think there is a concerted effort by someone to make sure that the United States of America citizenry, all of us, get this virus. Um, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, said many, many, many years ago, in politics, there's no such thing as a coincidence. And what I have seen from the beginning of this so-called pandemic is accident after accident after accident, all resulting in more and more people getting this, starting with the partial ban of flyers from China and then people on ships, etc., and people being flown back from another ship off Japan with people who had been tested for COVID and they were all in the same cabin. So, of course, the air was circulating and they all you know, were then susceptible to airborne virus materials. The point is you can't see this many catastrophic accidents and bad decisions and bad luck and stupid planning and no planning and not directing this from the federal level so that every state is operating under the same rules and conditions and protocols. I mean, what we have is a walking, galloping catastrophe. Because, again, if we're at war, someone seems to want everybody on this continent to get this. Leading to my next question, why? And it's not because of the fatalities. Something else about this virus. Please, someone out there, begin thinking long term. When the president said the other day, well, for 99% of everybody, it's, it's just the sniffles. No, that's, that's totally erroneous. We have absolutely documented cases, thousands of cases, where young people in their 20s and 30s are crippled, and it looks like they'll be crippled for life from getting this. So if you survive, you know, would life be worth living if you've had a stroke and you're paralyzed and you can't move? And the incidence of strokes with this are really, really terrifying. Can you imagine being a young person in the prime of life and suddenly you're confined to a wheelchair because you did something stupid like you didn't wear a mask? You know, if I was asked if I would go out in public right now, I would say no. Why do I have to go? I have things delivered. I have telecommunications. I can talk to the world. I can talk to all my friends. The problem is I can't protect my friends from doing very simple things to increase the level of protection. In this, you know, discussion, every time you put a barrier between you and this virus, you win. And it isn't adding, it's multiplying. If each step, let's say, reduced your chances of picking this thing up by 50%, if you have three steps, that's 50% of 50% of 50%. The percentages quickly mount up. So you can stay relatively safe even if you're in that danger era, meaning you're old or you've had, um, you know, some other problems like heart disease, you know, I've had a heart attack. I'm in that risk category. I'm also not a young spring chicken anymore. So I'm taking extra precautions. I wish my friends who I love dearly would take minimal precautions. A mask used to be, as we were talking with uh, Arlen last night, a mask used to be an indicator of a superhero. I mean, how many superheroes run around in comic books and Marvel movies now wearing masks? It used to be a sign of honor. It used to be the badge 
of being someone who gave a damn, who, who cared. And again, the numbers say that if you have this, and I know there was some folder all the other day about the asymptomatic people being able to convey this, uh, and that was false information. No, up to 40% now, again, in independent test after independent test of people can be carriers like Typhoid Mary and never even know they've got it. So the mask protects me from you. And why is it too much to ask me to be protected from something you may not even know you have? Again, what is the first casualty in any war? It's truth. It's called the fog of war. And what I think is going on is a deliberate campaign with paid experts to just shall we say, disimbue people with the idea of simple things they can do to vastly increase their security, their safety. Why does someone want us all to get this virus? That is the major question that I think we'll be able to answer maybe in another couple of weeks. Again, as I said last night, we are working on the um, COVID-19 show To end all COVID-19 shows, because we've discovered something so extraordinary, so amazing, so outside the box, that in my normal risk-averse conservatism, um, I'm really double and triple checking, and it's taking a lot of time. I'm trying to track down a specific doctor that uh, Robin and I worked with over years, someone that I've known, someone I trust, someone I'm trying to run this data by. So I have more expertise before, you know, we go public and it turns out to be, you know, something dumb and stupid. I do not like doing things that are dumb and stupid. In fact, I don't think anybody does. So on that note, we will get to our guest after the break. Uh, Let me just leave you with this because I think we need to change the mood. And this is the perfect mood changer. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We will have Maria Wheatley on when we return. understanding of current affairs and events and thus to bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience it's a spontaneous commentary based on well-verified references fed through vigilance and discernment our desire is to awaken your imagination with questions questions that have not been asked yet need answering the other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community learning new things asking questions getting compelling answers and interesting viewpoints 
It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. Clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, seven to nine p.m. Pacific time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. Maria Wheatley is a second-generation dowser who is taught by European master dowsers, her late father, and Chinese geomants. She's a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and stone circles. Maria is an accomplished author of books on sacred sites and dowsing. In 2015, Maria made a major discovery. In the Neolithic period, there was a royal priesthood of long-skulled, that's elongated people, that made Stonehenge their spiritual capital. Across Europe and the British Isles, this enigmatic, long-lost civilization designed elongated-shaped monuments to reflect their skull shapes, in Maria's hypothesis. During the early Bronze Age, the long-skulled people were murdered by round-skulled people who designed, I'm sorry, who designed round stone circles and created round barrows for the departed, reflecting the shapes of their skulls. Maria tracked down the long, elongated skull of the High Queen of Stonehenge and many others to reveal the secret history of Stonehenge. Maria has studied Neolithic Britain and Bronze Age prehistory at Bath and Oxford University. Along other professionals, Maria combines her knowledge of archaeology and earth energies with state-of-the-art equipment to detect and interpret the hidden frequencies that the earth emits. She's an expert on local, I'm sorry, on locating and analyzing earth energies at sacred sites across Europe. So without further ado, Maria, welcome back to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. Well, we've got another mystery to talk about uh, in terms of Stonehenge. Uh, When I wrote to you a few days ago and I sent one of these, uh, I think it was a, a press release from one of the universities there. You wrote back immediately to say, well, there's a lot more to the story than that press release. So we have three hours, give or take. Where do we begin? Well, we begin with the new finds, which were actually first discovered about 2012 actually and they've been reinterpreted so they've known about these massive pits that surround a superhenge called Durrington Walls and they found about 20 but it could be a huge circuit about a mile and a half in diameter surrounding the superhenge and they're very very large they're about 65 feet 20 meters uh, wide and they're about 16 feet five meters deep so in the what's believed to be in the neolithic period they dug these massive massive pits on this huge circuit well wait wait wait, wait. You, you know when you're talking meters my eyes glaze over because i'm a feet <laughs> and, and furlong kind of guy what is this in feet the the pits are 65 feet wide and about 16 feet deep so they're like house size underground 
dwellings or something. That's that's right. I mean, they are they are very huge. My God, and they're they're just, enormous. Imagine the land power it took by hand with what reindeer antler or whatever to, to dig them out of chalk because that region of the country, you know, you dig down just under the topsoil and you got basically, you know, powdered limestone, right? That's right. It's chalk bedrock and chalk bedrock can be quite solid, actually. It, it is a huge effort just to dig one of these pits, let alone the 20 that have been discovered out of a possible 50 that create a pit circle around uh, Durrington Walls, which uh, Durrington Walls is a massive superhenge. It's much bigger than Avebury, for example, and Avebury Henge is about 1,088 feet in diameter, Darrington Moors is 1,476 feet in diameter, and it has a henge bank around it, which is a big bank, about 10 feet high. And it was an original place, actually, Darrington Moors, that super henge of where the people that constructed Stonehenge were believed to live in a, in a very large town. Okay, should people be going to your, your Radio with Pictures contributions tonight? Yep, there's uh, there's a picture of uh, of the finds that have been found, uh, which is uh, on one of the the pictures there. So okay, they can have me, a look at that. The new finds is number let, one, I think. Let me Soon. tell let me tell people how to get there. Um, you want to go to the other side of midnight.com, and you want to click on tonight's banner with Marie and that gorgeous image of Stonehenge silhouetted against sunrise. That will take you to her guest page. Either click on fast links or scroll down a bit. You will get to her items. Item number one is a plan view taken looking straight down on the geometry of Woodhenge, uh, Durrington Wells, I believe, and then these new pits. If you click on it, it gets much bigger. And the pits are marked with little tiny white circles, and they're in an, an arc, two arcs, um, that apparently are part of a complete circle which you said, what, is a couple of miles across? It's, uh, it's about one and a half miles across, oh, two kilometers mind. across. So it, it's, quite, it's quite vast. Ah, she reverted to kilometers, folks. <laughs> <laughs> about a mile and a half, Richard. <laughs> Thank you. For us backward Americans. Oh, there yeah. you go. Okay, yeah. okay. So um, people can see what we're talking about. And there are a series of other links below that. We will get to them. Go ahead. Yes. So that's that's the the circuit they can see is go going round, and you've got a some at the southern end. They're called one A to nine A. Some of which have been uh, excavated, and they've dated them to around, uh, well, some of them at least to two thousand four hundred and eighty BC. That's from radiocarbon is, dating of what fires and. Uh, maybe reindeer antlers or something in the in these pits. Yeah, they they called. They didn't get to the bottom of uh, the pits, but they put a core sample down and analysed the core sample. But again, we always see that same date cropping up all of the time, which is around 2500 BC. I mean, that could be the building of the pyramids, the building mm. of Stonehenge. The building of anything, and that date is always associated with it. They did find some older carbon, which uh, dated to 6000 BC, but they, the university analysis at Oxford said that was incorrect. But uh, they, they always choose that date. I mean, it, it could be, or it could be something a little bit older. If it was older, then we're looking at the elongated civilization with the long skulls that could have built these pits. Certainly, the long-skulled people built a Lark Hill Causeway enclosure, which is a, a Neolithic monument, which dates to 3800 BC, which is a part of that circuit. So the older uh, monument, a Causeway enclosure, which is a circuit of earthen rings, concentric rings, formed part of that circuit. 
So we know that it was probably started uh, by the uh, by the long-headed people, and I think the the circuit of the circular pits were then constructed around the superhenge, which was constructed by the long-skulled people by the uh, by the beaker culture that came in, which had more of the rounder skulls. So mm. I think it started off as a, as a long-skulled monument. Hmm. By the way, for you folks that are kind of confused as to which show we're talking about. It's called Provocative New Mysteries at Stonehenge. If you want to find it on the site or you're listening to KCAA or other terrestrial affiliates. Um, Maria, how did they find these? Obviously, they weren't just digging randomly. How were these first suspected? And you said as early as 2012? Yeah, there's uh, a project run by several universities called uh, the Stonehenge Hidden Landscape Project. And that's using uh, state-of-the-art equipment, including LIDAR, to go across the ground and see what's beneath, basically. Then the excavation team will go in, they will analyze the data, they will have a look at that data, and then they will say, we're doing excavation here to find out what's, what's going on. Well, who in their right mind would have suspected a ring of pits? And I presume you're, you're implying that this, the ones they haven't uncovered yet would fill out the rest of the ring. Am I correct there? Yeah, that's that's what's highly suspected. It's like a pit, a massive pit ring surrounding the superhenge of Durrington Walls. Does anybody have any wild out-of-the-box speculations as to why this amount of human effort would be, A, involved in underground excavations of literally house-sized structures underground, and B, why would they have been arranged in a ring around Woodhenge in the middle? Yes, well, one of the ideas mooted into the interpretation of this massive pit circle ring is it could represent a very sacred area inside. So the, the pit circles going around separate the sacred from the profane. And that the inside area would be for, you know, special activities and ceremonies. But that's that's a very very huge uh, amount of manpower. And inside of which, parallel to those pit rings, are even smaller pits, sort of like a concentric in part oh uh, in gosh. southern. So it could have been concentric as well with massive pits and then smaller pits, which I'm not sure if the smaller pits held timber posts. I was just going to say, could these, and, and when we call them pits, when I, when I think of pits, I think of pitting from super cavitation on little propeller blades at that kind of thing. There's got to be a better name than pits. These are huge underground excavations, which obviously don't have roofs on now. But could they literally have been foundations for structures that stood well above ground? So if you'd come up on this thing, you know, 5,000 years ago, you would have seen a ring of big houses all arranged in this vast mile and a half wide circle with the woodhenge structure well, well deep inside, which is what, a few hundred feet across? Yes, I mean, uh, the Woodhenge is a lot smaller than Durrington Walls. Durrington Walls seems to be the focus, and Woodhenge is uh, slightly to the south of Durrington ah, Walls. I see. So that that because that is massive by itself, uh, it is like I said earlier, it's a massive uh, superhenge. Whether the pits had other structures within them isn't isn't known. Really, I mean, it, they could do. There's not a lot of information really about these finds. They're trying to analyze and, and bring out uh, more information later. Wait, 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 what, wait, 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 wait. My conspiracy bump is is really <laughs> bothering me right now. This starts out in 2012, yeah. and they've only uncovered X number, and they don't seem to know. They haven't excavated to the bottom of any one of them. They've done corings. What have they been doing? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's uh, that's a good good question. I mean, it's I what mean, 2012 to 2020 is, you know, like eight years. Yeah, they've they've had the the information. First of all, they were misinterpreted to be what's called dew ponds. So they thought they were like 
dug out uh, areas that would have had water, which is uh, which is a bit strange that they should think there were so many pits so close to each other if you wanted uh, water. And, and there arranged are old... in a geometry. Yeah, I know that should be the first the first clue. Yep. And going. Going back even earlier to, because these finds were put to 2480 BC, if you go back, uh, you know, a couple of uh, 500 years previous to that, you have just south of Stonehenge, what's called the Wilsford Shaft, and that was 100 feet deep, about 30 meters, 100 feet deep, and that was called a ritual shaft that went right down into the ground. So they've been digging these so-called pits and they're not just pits really because when you look at the data that has been supplied by Warwick University they're at a, a precise 40 degree angle as well going down so again there's a lot of effort going into the angle of these so-called pits rather than just saying you know they're randomly digging out they're, they're trying to get it at a 40 degree angle hmm so are these underground structures, I hate pits, are they like 90 degrees? Are they like, you know, super foundations under all underground? Well, again, the, the, the data coming out is quite, quite vague about them. And Gee, that again you know, makes me suspicious. It, it what is. What are they hiding? Is anybody, exactly. is anybody leaking? I mean, you know, we have a guy in the White House here that nobody likes, so... His own staff have been leaking like crazy for four years. I can't imagine with all the people in the field required to do, you know, field work in archaeology, that some people go to don't go to a pub, have a few beers and start talking about, hey, you know, mate, what we found, that kind of thing. Yeah, I I wish actually because I mean it is quite complex because it's alongside the so-called pits, you have a timber rows imagine a line of timber posts oh like it like, like an old western fort yeah the, the wall I, of a western I, fort okay yeah that's right and you have these these timber posts going for you know some distance say about with what's called 14 and 15 d pit numbers you then have a row aligned to that facing the mid summer sunrise so you've also got astronomical alignments put in with these which is the same as the heel stone an outlying stone to stonehenge so if you're at the center of stonehenge you would see the sunrise come over the heel stone so we have you know complex astronomical alignments associated with these structures as well it just doesn't make any sense that this wouldn't be, you know, some major papers with dimensions and, you know, underground, you know, ground penetrating radar and at least excavate one fully and sift for any clues in the soil. I mean, that's the stock and trade of archaeology to find out who lived where, where there were migrations. If you're looking at little seeds that came in from some other place, like it was a trading center. In other words, everything's missing except, oh, we found something interesting. That's right. I mean, the, the most that you can really glean uh, from these so-called, uh, you know, expert excavations so far is, is that same old time date, 2500 BC, you know, give or take a, a couple of uh, decades. I mean, clearly what was going on in, in the ancient world, they were integrating the uh, earlier Neolithic sites of the long-skulled people, and then they were making a circuit of round structures associated with that uh, ancient site and uh, that ancient site uh, called Lark Hill Causeway Enclosure was only found recently due to a building development by the military to make more military homes for the troops that were coming home from Germany mm -hmm. they had to house these people and they they found this new ancient site uh, Lark Hill Causeway Enclosure and that's the the starting point of these so-called pit structures that go around and it focuses like I said right at the center of Darrington Walls but when you go to the northern circuit of these pit structures um, they are there's about sort of 10 of them they're not necessarily all spaced um, equally around some are closer to ones than others mm. but that 
that whole arc there is towards the mid-summer sunrise, heading to another hilltop called Sidbury Hill, which is to the north of that area. And again, that's more astronomy uh, incorporated into these pits. And the, the bit below, towards the south, the pits there face the mid-winter sunrise. So no, wait, wait, wait. When, when you say they face, I mean, we're talking about structures that are underground. <clears throat> we have a provisional date, 2,500 years, 2,500 B.C., 5,000 years ago, give or take. <clears throat> are you saying that the actual alignment of these rectangular underground foundations are oriented differently, each one, like – they're supposed yeah. to be oriented to, to an astronomical, because that would strongly imply that there was an equally interesting geometry of whatever was built on top of them above ground. Well, some of the, the pits towards the south are uh, in alignment to the mid-winter sunrise, and the ones in the north to the midsummer sunrise some of them not all of them mm. and that was that has been noted and long before these these pits were were discovered there was a master dowser called guy underwood who i've inherited all of his unpublished and published surveys he went around in the 1940s to the 1960s investigating stonehenge ah. and many other sites uh, besides he, he was an archaeologist as well and a fantastic surveyor. He discovered just outside of Woodhenge what he claimed to be a Neolithic temple area, which was rectangular. Well, that was dismissed at the time because they thought all the uh, ancient people of prehistory lived in roundhouses, and, and that couldn't be so because it's, it's rectangular. That, that was fell out of their model. But uh, about in 2003 to 2005, the archaeological project led by Professor Mike Parker Pearson of the Riverside Project started to find rectangular structures inside of Durrington walls, which they then interpreted as houses. Some were very large and some were very small, and that massive, massive meeting hall that they found inside of Durrington walls as well. But uh, preceding that, by 50 years, Guy Underwood, that master dancer, found that rectangular structure. Now, when he was estimating the so-called depth of the timbers that uh, he claimed to have found, that structure could have been two stories high just outside of Woodhenge. Mm. And if indeed that is correct, then you would oversee Stonehenge and all of the ancient monuments in that area. Hmm. In terms of the dating, you say they did not excavate any of these underground structures, but they did core, they went down, I don't know how many feet, and then they would do a coring to the very bottom, and they bring up the core tube and they would analyze it layer by layer. Am I right? Yeah, they, they did excavate them in part, but they never reached the bottom of some of the, the, the pits. So, for example, they, they'd go down you know, several, several feet uh, and then not get the bottom, put a core in for some of the, uh, the pits, bring that core sample out and analyze that. But really, good good archaeology gets to what's called the old land surface to the to the bottom of anything. Well, and then you yeah, because it that. sounds it sounds to me like the twenty five hundred years <clears throat> is only the organic, datable radiocarbon stuff where they stop drilling at that level. What's below yes. that? Is it much, much, much more ancient? And is that why there's this aura of mystery and partial reporting? That again, my conspiracy bump is really giving me a problem on this tonight. Yeah, I know because well, when you you do analyze some of uh, the dates that came out, for example, from what they call feature pit seven A, they got a, a shell material to carbon date, and that came out at six thousand and eighty to five thousand and ninety nine, uh, five thousand BC. So. In effect, they dismissed that and said that cannot be correct. 
And then they got another shell from another pit called Feature 8A, and that came out at 4,710 to 4,550 calibrated uh, date BC, and they dismissed that. Because in, in archaeology, they said it was, it was a contaminated piece of, of carbon. But when the dates don't match what the, we're spoon-fed that timeline of 2500 BC, if, if, the, if it doesn't fit, they, they put it out. And the same came out at Stonehenge. They found some grain in one of the bluestone holes uh, that housed the former bluestone. That date came out at 6000 BC, but they dismissed that and said that cannot be. Let's stick to what we know, and it's that 2500 BC timeline. The, the, but that said, the, the Neolithic Causeway enclosure that dates to uh, you know 3600 or 3800 BC that does seem to start the pit circuit. But again, I think we need to think really outside of the box in dating these structures because we, we say that they're Neolithic, we say that they're Bronze Age, but really if you don't have the depth and the bottom of an excavation, it is guesswork. Well, that seems like very idiotic science. Didn't anybody, or are they also in the club, that when they're making these gross professional errors, nobody says, wait a minute, excuse me, sir, can I have some more porridge? Can I get to the bottom of the pit? I know. I mean, even in some of the excavations at Avebury, looking for the West Kennet Stone Avenue. I mean, if you if you walk between each stone, you can get to about you know twenty or so paces. So if you're looking for a missed stone, I would have walked twenty uh, paces. A matching where the stones are laid out but their excavation was way off that and then they, they say we can't find the stones perhaps there wasn't the the avenue there and, and you you look and think you know where does your practical application uh, come from you you've missed the boat again so sometimes I, I don't have faith in the, the archaeology that they claim or the dates that they claim either. And they didn't, Richard, even know that the Neolithic people had long skulls. And they are still dismissive of that, even though there's evidence out there in museums, which I have found. And I was going to say, when, when we come back, we're coming up to the uh, top of the hour. When we come back, give our new audience members, because we get people all the time, new people, Give them a kind of a reprise of your work on the elongated versus round skulls and this really interesting, you know, idea that there were other people with different head configurations living on this landscape a long, long time ago. Maybe what I'm, you know, suspecting is some kind of cover up of these underground structures has to do with covering up that ancient prehistory potentially yes hmm okay hold it there we're at the top of the hour my guest this morning is maria wheatley who is a dowser who's an archaeologist and who can definitely think outside the box even if the box is many 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 feet underground you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland we shall return Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some 
amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.